0: Do we want a government that lies to us? Do we want a news media that hides the truth? I mean, for our own good.
1: Welcome to This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. This is the first full week of April 2020, and I'm guessing the answer is no to Paul's initial question, but let's see what he says.
0: (laughs) Oh, you know me so well, Tim. You know, uh, we really, we had two scripts, and maybe another one, that that dealt with our officialdom. And I'm going to include the fourth estate uh, in that officialdom. The government, the medical establishment, the National Health Service, the, that's Britain, but uh, the, you know, the national medical establishment, the CDC the media, all I increasingly feel like tell us what they want us to know so that we will react the way they think we should react and do not believe we can handle the truth. And I think that, one, they have a duty to tell us the truth. But I also think that, two, We can handle the truth. And in fact, it is critical from a very practical standpoint for them to tell us the truth. Because when we find out they lie to us, it means that in a crisis, and this pandemic is a crisis, they're not believable. And that's a real problem. I would like to be able to at least kind of assume at the first, you know, the first get-go, the first couple steps that what they've told us is true. We might want to check and verify, but that basically we're going to get the truth. And in the Monday script, America Unmasked, I dealt with the fact that weeks ago, I posted something on Facebook uh, just because I had heard yet another media report and some other official expert telling us how we did not need masks. In fact, wearing a mask could be counterproductive. It could spread the virus. And it just, just something kind of, you know, touched me and I thought, wait a second, that makes no sense whatsoever. And of course, I I assumed that they were lying to us because they were afraid there weren't enough masks and that people somehow would gobble up whatever extra masks there were and medical personnel, nurses who needed them, who were dealing with people very sick from the coronavirus and doctors uh, would not be able to get the masks they needed. And of course, that... uh, You know, once they finally started to change the story, I caught a a little bit where uh, Nora O'Donnell, uh, the anchor at CBS News, asked Dr. Fauci, uh, wait a second, We're, we're seeing all these cases where people don't know that they have the virus. And now some people are suggesting as many as half the people who have this virus and are contagious do not know it meaning they're going to spread it, unless maybe they were wearing a mask. And so, and Fauci's response was, well, we really need to make sure that we have enough enough masks for medical personnel, but we don't, you know, we, we don't know exactly how it spread, and it probably would be a good thing and probably would diminish spreading the virus if we were all wearing masks. Now, in the, in the 24 hours around this happening, I found out that my mother-in-law, who happens to be an excellent seamstress, she hasn't you know gotten her sewing machine out in some time, but uh, when my wife and her uh, brothers and sisters were kids, uh, she was making clothes sometimes for them and all kinds of things. She was very, very good at it. And I heard that she was making some masks for herself, for friends, for other people who might need them. My niece is selling masks on Etsy uh, and making them and giving them to family and friends for free. And and so it just dawned on me that, wait a second, what they should have done, first because they owe us the truth. We're paying these people, by golly, and they owe us the honest-to-goodness truth. But second, had they told us the truth? Had they trusted us enough? Because so much of this is a matter of trust. And what I maintain, look, you know, you you trust but verify. But let's look at this. Are the American people more trustworthy as a collective? Or are our government officials as a collective? Is the government more trustworthy? And I submit to you that the people are a heck of a lot more trustworthy. So what they should have done is to say, look, we don't have enough masks. They could have even passed some sort of draconian law that makes you a felon and you're, you know, you're taken to Guantanamo if you, uh, you know, purchase a N95 mask without being a medical professional or something. They could have done all kinds of things like that to protect medical people and make sure that these masks that are of that medical grade were getting to them. But they also could have just said, you know what, people, we're in a crisis and medical professionals, nurses and doctors who are dealing with sick people need these masks desperately. They need them more than you do. And I'm asking you as your president, as your governor, as your mayor, as a, as a medical health professional, I'm asking you, don't get one of these masks, save them for medical professionals. But let's get the next best thing and let's ask the American people to go to work. Instead of like after 9-11, when we were told what we could do was go shopping, when the American people wanted to do something, And we're told to go shopping or in this situation, when we're told basically to sit at home and wait for the government money to just flow into our bank accounts, we want to do something. This is our world. These, this is our life and, and lives. And, and frankly, let us know what we can do to help. I saw an article in the paper and we'll probably write something next week about this where the National Health Service in Britain is strained to the max, and they put out a call, you know, there was some talk, I think it was uh, de Blasio or maybe it was Cuomo who talked about, we may need some sort of draft to get the people we need to help, you know, uh, be nurses, or not nurses, but to, to help the nurses and to kind of provide some support for our hospitals. And, of course, the idea was somehow the government would mandate it and grab people. And But the British put out a call and in four days had 750,000 people volunteer to help the National Health Service. That's the sort of country I want to live in. And I live in that country because I know my neighbors and I know people all over this country but our government doesn't seem to understand that. They seem to think that the American people are either children or malcontents that somehow have to be managed and, and cursed at and ordered and told what to do instead of informed and asked to do the right thing. And look, I know that in any large group of people, and there are 320 million people, uh, you know, give or take a few. In this, in this country, there's gonna be a couple of bozos, a couple of idiots who are gonna do the wrong thing. But for the most part, we can trust the common sense and the common decency of the vast majority of Americans. And I'm not talking about 70%, I'm talking about 90 something percent, like 97 or eight or nine. And that's what we should have done. We should have said, look, we need masks. You need to wear a mask. And of course it might start. I see people out sometimes as I'm walking or whatever, they've got a bandana. Well, you know, it's better than nothing. And, and the mask that uh, my niece is making, they're four ply. That's great. Well, now she's figured out she's going to put a little hole in where you can stick in your own filter. And people have told me that you could even put coffee filters in there and that it would provide some extra protection. Look, we're not super proud. We wanna live and we wanna help our fellow man live. And so let's go do it. But instead we were treated like children. I don't know that you even treat children like that. We were treated as if we couldn't handle the truth. And that just made me crazy. Uh, it, it's just, it's not right. It's a stupid way to do it from a practical standpoint from what's effective. But also they have no right to take our money and run a government for them to make those decisions and not to give us the information that we have paid for. So it's, uh, uh, it, it's a bad start in terms of getting trust and we need that trust. And of course, on Tuesday, we had a, another script that was another contagious disease. Not talking about the coronavirus here, but talking about Senator Tom Cotton from Arkansas, who went on one of the Sunday shows and spoke out uh, on the floor of the House of the Senate as well about this virus coming from one of the bio labs in Wuhan and that, and and of course they immediately, as as our media is wont to do, if they don't like the politics of the person speaking, they will just jump to some conclusion. And so we saw story after story, probably the worst offender being the Washington Post, uh, but also there was a, a terrible story in the Huffington Post basically slamming cotton, and saying that he was, uh, was you know, pushing this, <clears throat> this story that had already been debunked. Now what they claimed Cotton had said is that this was some sort of military agent that was created by the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, and, uh, and that somehow it was purposeful, or, or at least that it was man-made, even if the release of it wasn't purposeful. Well, that wasn't at all what Senator Cotton had said. So they create this straw man and then beat it up. To what purpose? I guess maybe to protect the, the malfeasance of the Chinese Communist government, uh, to somehow make it to where we're not going to point fingers at China, because somehow to, to point fingers at China is racist even though that doesn't have anything to do with why people are pointing fingers at China. Um, it's a complete, ridiculous side issue. Um, and of course, another thing we'll talk about next week is the fact that the World Health Organization just came out, and I'll just spend a second mentioning this, just came out the head of, the, of WHO, uh, the World Health Organization, came out and accused Taiwan of being racist and attacking him because he's from Africa and he's black. And of course he presented zero evidence. It's a ridiculous thing to say. I mean, if, there's a, if there is an open, non-racist, non-discriminatory country in, in Asia, if you were to list them all, Taiwan would be at the top of the list of welcoming people who don't happen to be Asian or what have you. It's the only country in Asia that frankly has legalized gay marriage, for instance. It has liberal democratic values, and this is ridiculous. And now maybe he could point to a couple people online who had said something, but he didn't even do that. And of course, Taiwan, unlike the People's Republic of China, is a free country where people can actually say what they want online and they aren't going to be censored by their government. But he didn't, he presented absolutely zero evidence. Anyway, this, all of this seems designed for us to just shut up and believe whatever we're told and react the way that our betters, that our officialdom wants us to react. And it is absolutely outrageous. And so reading a column by Tim Carney, Uh, who is one of the best columnists, um, both both a good writer and a, a very smart guy and an honest, trustworthy guy who will tell you the truth, even if it doesn't fit his political opinions. And boy, is that precious in our world today. And Carney pointed out that this was ridiculous. The way they had they had created this straw man, misstated what Cotton had stated, and then attacked him. And of course, even what he had said hasn't really been debunked. Nobody's proved that this didn't come as a man-made agent from, from some government lab in China. Now, there's not evidence that it has come that way. And of course, that's not what Cotton had said. But the point of all of it, and I think it's, it's something that uh, is really important for people to, to look at, Carney writes the first question should be whether the folks who attacked that notion of cottons in February, and I pointed out including the Washington Post and the Huffington Post, will explain why they were unwilling to consider it. And that's, that's where we are. Our news media is unwilling to look at issues if they don't fit their narrative. They they seem to want to give us a narrative and not the news. And we've talked about it a lot here. We're going to continue to talk about it. But it is, I think it is the biggest problem going forward. And by golly, I don't have much faith in politicians. But I'm beginning to have even less faith in our news media. Our news media thinks it's okay to not tell us things, to hide truths to misconstrue things and then beat up straw men, all because they think that what they want us to believe is the right thing to believe. And so if the facts don't fit their narrative, we're not going to get those facts. That is a scary situation.
1: Carney asks, why would they consider it as a conjecture or a theory? But the next thing isn't just considering it. Journalists in the past might have researched it. They might have done some reporting. Right. That's what's missing now from mainstream journalism is they don't do much re- actual investigation. Uh, what they have is they have facts lying on the ground, which they cover up some and then they extol and ballyhoo others. And they're on cruise control. Normally, if you're driving down the road, you're, you're, you're negotiating curves and you speed up and slow down on that. But if you're on a straight stretch, you put it on cruise control. And you don't think much about what you're doing. Well, they're still on cruise control. They think that everything is can go it goes their way because they have an ideology that's carrying them through.
0: And and that narrative and that ideology that creates that narrative is what in their mind creates that straightaway, always. But but you know, I think a lot of media people and, and frankly, you know, most of the investigative media being done in this country today and going back decades, if not longer is done by the print media. And the print media has been devastated. So I can just hear, you know, I have friends in the media, loved ones who, who have worked in the media, and I can hear them saying, well, we've been devastated. We don't have as many investigative journalists as we once did. And it's tough to investigate this stuff. And I'm sympathetic to that because I know it's true. They don't have the same number of people in the newsroom. But it doesn't justify giving us a narrative and not the news. You can always say we're speculating about what could be because we don't have all the facts. And in fact, one of my biggest complaints during this whole pandemic and and the coverage is that we're constantly being told things in an authoritative manner when they don't know that that's true. You know, at first we were told young people aren't getting this. You know, kids can't get this. Well, they can get it. Now, they're not getting it. It appears in the same way that they've gotten previous flus and other things. But again, admit what you don't know, because what you're trying to do is provide news and let us as consumers of that news make our own decisions. But if your narrative is, we need a powerful government that does everything for people because people are too stupid to do it for themselves and that freedom is a risky proposition because people are all a bunch of idiots, well then of course you're not going to give us all the news. I submit we're not idiots and we want our news. We want our government to tell us the truth because we're paying them to do it and we want our media to tell us the truth because we're paying them to do it. If you can't find the truth because you don't have enough bodies to throw at the problem, to to launch investigations, well, then you don't. And and I can forgive that, but I cannot forgive lying to us.
1: You know, there has been a lot of investigation in the blogosphere and the vlogs and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I've seen a number of reports that came to me, not from the major news that I think blows some of this wide open. Uh, One man uh, who was a sinophile, just uh, investigated what's on the web. He could read Chinese. He has a Chinese wife. And and he just looked at all the job postings from uh, the clinic in Wuhan or that operation in Wuhan. And he tracked down, and he thinks he knows who patient zero is. He zeroed in on patient zero, and he thinks that he has the evidence, you know, it's it's in, in the news reports and official statements that China knows who that person is, and they've, and they've already cremated her, and she's dead. And that, now that's – do we know that for sure? No. But has the major media picked up on this? No. Now, there, here's somebody who did some reporting and investigations. You would think that at least somebody in the major networks or a major newspaper would say, oh, this is an interesting theory. This is some interesting investigation. Let me see if I can double-check it. What
0: facts do we have that cut against it or that uphold it? Let's give you the facts. Let's present the theory and then you decide. Exactly. You know, um, one of the things we're going to talk about next week as well, there's a, there's a lot, there's so much happening that, you know, we had, we, we only have five scripts. We may have to start doing five scripts a day. No, I don't think we quite have time for that. But, but uh, there's so much that we want to get to because there was also an excellent report uh, and and uh, this gentleman whose name's going to escape me, I hate that, uh, but uh, was on Tucker, Tucker Carlson, uh, writes for the American Conservative, and has a report on how much manipulation and leverage the Chinese government has on our media. And I've complained many times on these podcasts, and in other places, about the fact that the Washington Post and other major publications take ads from the Chinese government. They have a revenue stream from the Chinese government. And, you know, it's a real problem. He points out that uh, uh, NBC Universal, uh, which is uh, owned by Comcast, well, Comcast has some sort of uh, business in China. They're building an amusement park, some huge amusement, amusement park. And, and he points out there are other media outfits that have corporate financial interest in China. And I think, as we talked about uh, with several different commentaries uh, back last year, when we discovered that the National Basketball Association, which was started in the United States, basketball's a US sport. It's now been exported around the world. It's very popular in China. And of course, the NBA wants access to 1.4 billion potential customers in China. And when somebody said something about, hey, we ought to stand with the freedom fighting people of Hong Kong, against totalitarian uh, China, all of a sudden there was a lot of pushback because you're supposed to shut your mouth and just make money. You know, I, I love making money, even though I don't make that much of it, but I love the idea of making money. I love the freedom that people have to make money and the freedom they have from having made money and being able to buy things and do things. Um, I like that sort of free market capitalism. But that sort of free market capitalism doesn't suggest to me that you ought to just make money at all costs, that you would trade the freedom, which is the bottom line of it all, for a little extra cash today. That's stupid. That is the sort of impulse, you know, that people need to control. You know, the person who who uh, can't stop eating candy bars. Uh, that's the same sort of thing as the, as the businessman who says, I'm going to make a deal with the devil to be a little richer today, knowing that in the end I may lose all the freedom that I have enjoyed to allow me to get to this point to be able to be rich and to do what I want to do in my life. It's, um, you know, we, we have, I think, a very serious problem with the reach that the wise, smart, but evil Chinese Communist Party has around the world. We've talked about it a lot. We're going to keep talking about it. I think people are beginning to wake up. And I think one of the reasons you saw this ridiculous charge from the head of the World Health Organization against Taiwan is that this crisis has really caused average people who don't get involved in politics, especially international politics, to understand instinctively what's going on here. That China is the tail wagging the entire international dog, that the, that the World Health Organization will lie and hide facts that kill people, because we don't know them, for the benefit of Communist China and that a country like Taiwan has done so well, and yet this international organization can't say the word Taiwan. The, uh, and, and many people have probably seen the little footage of someone in Hong Kong, a reporter asking this guy who worked for the World Health Organization to assess how Taiwan has done in this. And the official pretending he can't hear Oh, I didn't hear your question. She says, okay, I'll ask it again. And then he says, oh, no, 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 let's move on. Well, what, if you didn't hear the question, why would you say move on? One reason because you're lying. Because you're lying because you can't speak to it because your masters are the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party in, in China, where 25 Politburo members make all the decisions for 1.4 billion people. And frankly, you realize how they've taken over this international organization. You realize they have all this influence in our own media that we're not getting good, solid information. This is really scary. And it's, it's, it has gotten so far. Last year before this pandemic ever broke, I, uh, having traveled to Hong Kong, having been tear gassed a little bit by the jerks, uh, you know, who who run the totalitarian China and who'd like to make Hong Kong uh, as totalitarian as the rest of China and who constantly threaten Taiwan. I have really started to look into this stuff and get mighty concerned. And now with this pandemic, I think the whole world is getting a real lesson in how serious the Chinese infiltration into the U.S., into Australia, into Africa, into the entire world has gotten. And, uh, and, and frankly, look, if, if uh, I like the Chinese people, I like that they're able to produce stuff and, and I hope they get rich. I hope they produce all kinds of things, but not if they're totally controlled by a totalitarian government, uh, and then seek to have a world in which you can't speak out politically. As we've said oftentimes, Tim, the number one gift that America has given, not only the American people, but the whole world is our First Amendment and the whole idea of freedom of speech and allowing people to say what they want to say and not giving the government one tiny iota of control over that, well, the opposite of that is what China has been doing in trying to stop anyone, and smash anyone, and hold economic clout over anybody to silence what's going on there. And uh, so this is the this is, I think, the issue of this this time period. I think in the next five, ten years, maybe less. Uh, we're going to come to a point in which the world either wakes up and says, no, 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 we are not going to an authoritarian regime that controls almost the entire world. We are going to embrace freedom. And, of course, when you look at Taiwan and you look at the People's Republic of China, those are mirror opposites. Here is a country... Uh, when we're talking about Taiwan that has freedom, that has free speech, that is economically doing very, very well. And then you look at China and here is a country that is economically done pretty well, but with all kinds of political totalitarian ideas. And uh, year, years ago, uh, just a, a last thought on this. Years ago, somebody uh, posted something, I think on Facebook, and it was an article, and my sister said, oh, you ought to look at this, because she knew I was interested in, in what was happening in China. And, uh, and they made the point that China really isn't communist, in the sense that they have allowed certain economic freedoms they aren't communist in that sense that they understand how capitalism works, at least in terms of capitalizing businesses and making money. And because so many millions of Chinese starved to death because they had a stupid communist government, they have incentivized people to go, you go find some way to make some money. But they are totalitarian, meaning You've got no freedom that anybody, no matter how much money they have, can be taken out in a nanosecond by their state, can be thrown in prison or killed and forgotten about with no redress. So we really have a stark choice, I think, coming at us. It's hard to know how fast it will will come to a head, but it will come to a head sooner and with a better outcome the more Americans understand what's going on with China. And, um, and you know, this is something that uh, we're going to talk about a lot because I think uh, ultimately it's not just about Hong Kong. It's not just about Taiwan. It's about us.
1: Yeah, and it gets worse than that, though. I mean, it's about us in the obvious sense that if we accept the media Lies or prevarications or disingenuousness or whatever they do their narrative, and if we allow the government to keep on lying to us for our own benefit, that makes us serviles. That makes us serfs. So we can't be that if we're going to be free at all. I mean, we have to first confront our government and our media, and then we can con- confront China.
0: You know. You know. You're you're right. Uh, it is all about our government representing us because. And I tell my friends in Taiwan, the American people you can trust. The problem is the American people don't always know what's going on with their government. And, you know, you know, Trump's been pretty good on a lot of issues involving Taiwan. But sometimes I'll point out, you know. Don't trust any of our leaders. And, and of course, Biden has said some ridiculously stupid things like, the, oh, they're fine folks in China, but they're no, they're no threat to us economically. Um, well, they're not fine folks, and they are a threat. So he, he's right, except for being 110% wrong. And, um, and so, but, but the American people, if we're aware... I think our government is likely to do very good things in the world even and uh and and you know i've traveled to a couple of these global forums around the world and and uh years ago i went to uruguay and uh one of the americans who was setting up the the uh forum told me you know they don't like americans too much i said oh why not and uh, i said well (laughs) the cia helped a coup in 1984 that basically shut down their National Assembly for a couple of years and and had military rule instead. And of course, I consider myself fairly well educated. I'm I'm interested. I'm trying to learn all I can about political happenings. I'm particularly interested in US foreign policy because I'm concerned that we have oftentimes done things that are outrageously bad and evil. And I and and I knew nothing about it, nothing. And oftentimes I'm sent stories about what's going on in China or, or you know, Taiwan or Hong Kong from people I know in that area. And I, I've heard nothing about it and I would hear nothing about it unless they told me because my media is not covering it. And, and sometimes you can understand it. Look, it, you know, there's a lot of news to cover. You can't cover every village in the world But some of these things are pretty big. Um, And and I I just, I don't understand why, you know, they don't cover it. And what I said when I gave a report on North America, I began by saying, you know, I didn't realize when I was coming to Uruguay some of the history. And I pointed out that I, just what I pointed out just now, that I've tried to educate myself about this. And I told them. The American people, if they knew about this, would be livid. And sadly, they don't know. And it's, it, the truth is, it's like someone who might, you know, when they call this the China virus. Oh, that's anti-Chinese. Look, the Chinese people are wonderful people, people everywhere. The, the problem in Nazi Germany wasn't the average German. The problem in Imperial Japan was not the average Japanese citizen. The problem throughout history when governments have done horrible, terrible things wasn't the average person who happened to live in that country. It was the government. And and not that at times they didn't, you know, it didn't seep into the general public more than it should have but let's let's point where the problem is. And the biggest problem in this world is, I believe, the Chinese Communist Party. And the biggest problem in America, which also causes problems in the world, is our government's attitude that they run the show and they tell us what they want us to know. Until we have a government, that represents us, and I don't think that's going to happen until something that we've talked about quite a bit in recent weeks with this pandemic and with legislatures being shut down, is that we ought to have voting from home, home districts not standing around in Washington with a bunch of fellow politicians and lobbyists, but at home standing around with people who you're supposed to be working for, and that we need smaller districts so that you are close to your constituents. You're not somebody who they see in TV as, you're somebody they know. And, and, you know, if you get 50 phone calls saying, hey, what the heck's going on? You feel like you better answer them, not go raise a bunch more money to drown them out. So uh, we, you know, our government is a threat because it ignores the goodness of the American people. And frankly, the chinese communist party is a threat because it ignores the goodness and stomps on the goodness of the chinese people
1: well that's very pro people and speaking of being pro people on thursday uh, you had a piece called news bias and winning which is about the people's party socialists uh, socialism uh, but it wasn't quite the, it wasn't quite the <laughs> <laughs> take normally you would think a socialist piece would be about
0: Isn't it funny that so often, you know, when uh, places like San Francisco or, you know, the People's Republic of San Francisco or the more liberal pro-socialist, and that's said with such disdain in the same way that the People's Republic of China has 25 people elected by nobody, you know, none of the people, no, no democratic election in its history, and they control everything. So, you know, people pick up on that. But on Thursday, it was uh, Wednesday, of course, Bernie Sanders suspended his campaign. And as we've talked about often, Tim, you know, it's interesting how scared the Democrats have been of of, uh, Bernie Sanders, because at one point it looked like he had the you know, he had the inside track to winning this nomination. And. They are scared of him, I'm convinced, not because they disagree with his positions. And, of course, this this fear and kind of piling on, uh, you saw once people kind of recognized, oh, he could win this thing, the media pile on was incredible, just incredible. It just seemed like everywhere there was negative stories about him and a zillion columns about what a terrible, you know, guy he was and how terrible it would be. But not really hitting him on his policies, because for the most part, our liberal media establishment, and I'm talking about the Washington Post and the New York Times and the networks and CNN and MSNBC, they are more liberal than the Democratic Party. They don't have a problem with national health care, uh, universal health care. They don't have a problem with the government being gigantic in every way, shape, and form. They had one problem with, with Bernie Sanders, and that is he might lose. And it strikes me it, it, in, in thinking about, geez, I'd really like to say something about how they've jettisoned Bernie Sanders, but they're not jettisoning him for his socialist ideas, they're jettisoning – that's not an easy word to say. They're getting rid of him <laughs> for the fact that he's honest about them being socialist ideas. And they want that socialism. They just don't want the label because it's not a winning label. They'd like to call it something else and maybe hoodwink a few people and, and win the darn election. And it brought to mind a story that I had meant to write a uh, commentary about and didn't get to, where ABC had suspended a reporter, David Wright, because Project Veritas, uh, James O'Keefe, who does some of these things, who basically uh, single handedly took down Acorn uh, by going in and surreptitiously recording different ACORN officials saying unbelievably outrageous things. Well, he recorded David Wright, and he asked him if he was a democratic socialist. And Wright says, oh, yeah. Though he pointed out not really a democratic socialist, just a socialist, <laughs> which, which kind of to me, wow, you really wanted to get rid of that democratic part real quick. Um, but you know what? people are free to have their own political ideas. And it seems to me that if he's objective in the way he reports that whether he's a socialist or a Republican or a Democrat or a libertarian, you know, he has a right to his own personal beliefs. He also criticized the network and somebody could say, well, that's why they wanted to get rid of him. But I don't think so. I think what ABC was doing was to remove the perception that they were left. Now, I, I don't know how anyone can objectively look at ABC and CBS and NBC or The Washington Post and The New York Times and think that they're playing it straight down the middle and are objective. They are way to the left. And I think that ABC couldn't stomach the idea that people would be able to point to a socialist working for them and, see, and say, see, this is why their coverage is so left. So they got rid of him in the same way that the Democratic Party got rid of Bernie Sanders, not because he was a socialist, but because they didn't want to be seen as socialist.
1: Well, um, where do we go from here? The other two pieces this week weren't really on the theme, right? They were, weren't quite on, on media lying and government lying, uh, though I suppose uh, Wednesday's piece on the ratchet racket is kind of about the uh, government lying.
0: I think it's largely about government and media not telling us the rest of the story. So maybe not so much lying, But I'm kind of surprised that there haven't been more questions asked to Mr. Trump uh, or other officials uh, to the Congress. Where's this $2.2 trillion coming from? And as I understand it, it's going to be scaled up. They're already talking about another trillion. And even even the $2.2 trillion, depending on how things roll out, could end up being a lot more than that. They're not being asked, hey, hey, what, where do you get this money, and what's the impact on our economy long term to borrow all this money, <clears throat> which I don't think I don't think they can borrow quite that much money. Uh, I think they're going to get the printing presses going, and there's been almost zero talk about, uh, among public officials. Uh, you know, we talked a, a week ago. About Thomas Massey, the Congressman from Kentucky, who dared to make people even vote on it. And, uh, and, and, of course, people could legitimately say, hey, he was putting people at risk. But the fact that they came back to Washington and then still refused to hold a vote that put them on the record, I think, just makes it clear Massey was right. But, but the media has a responsibility to ask tough questions. And there haven't been any tough questions about how this money just poof, comes to us out of thin air. And it's going to, you know, I think it's going to have a heck of an impact. Uh, You know, when everything kind of settles down, there's going to be a lot more dollars out there chasing goods. And I think we're going to see a little bit of inflation.
1: Well, that's the classic definition of inflation that even media people know. It's the kind of thing that you'll hear from journalists in, in the past anyway, uh, inflation is what happens. Consumer price inflation is what happens when too much money chases too few goods. And we're also shut down. The productivity in this nation has just been cut down Bye. to almost nothing. And that's going to have a huge effect on the amount of goods in the market very soon, uh, even now, but you know, down the road, too, because if you stop the production, that stops the produce. And uh, so we're going to have lots of this money flowing around, but fewer goods than we're used to. So what does that mean? It means automatically raising prices. I don't see how that can't happen this time. I mean, you know, with with many of the things the Fed does, there are ways that it doesn't immediately affect consumer price inflation. In this case, I don't see how it can't, though I'd love to be instructed differently.
0: Well, and it's funny, I I kind of was smirking a little bit as you started to talk about even the media recognizes that, you know, that causes inflation when you just pump a bunch of money into the economy, but of course, maybe they, they know that now in the 1970s, and I'm, I'm dating myself, um, but in the 1970s, we were first kind of told that inflation was caused by women going to the grocery store and buying too much stuff. Too much demand somehow had, had caused prices to go up. And I think, I think that got debunked uh, before the 70s were, were done. But early on, it seemed like when inflation hit in the 70s, there was not a recognition because I can remember as as a libertarian explaining to people, look, inflation has to do with the money supply. It's not that somehow somebody went to the store and bought too much because, you know, they have the money to buy that. It's, you know, if you do have a bunch of people wanting a certain product, that product's going to go up in value. But then that means they don't have as much money to buy other products. And you would think the demand being less, those products would go down. So when you see massive inflation like we did see in the 70s, uh, that's not somebody's shopping habits. That's uh, that's the government uh, pumping a lot of money into the economy. But but the 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 ratchet racket also points out what I think almost anybody who looks at history and who, you know, is is fair minded, uh, is going to see, which is government has a tendency to expand in a crisis. I mean, you know, government at this point is telling everybody to stay home and they're just going to pump money into our bank accounts. And that gives them a tremendous amount of power. And governments do not tend to then quickly relinquish that power. And you see, um, and this is not something we've really talked about, and maybe we will get to it um, in in coming weeks, but you see so many people on the left demanding that Donald Trump, who they don't like, be in control of everything that happens in the country. And when he suggests that governors should do this and other people should do that, oh, no, 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 the federal government must do everything, which actually leads us to... Friday's script, California secedes, question mark. Uh, and, and it's interesting because um, California has talked about secession. Some I say California, the, the state obviously has trees and rocks and dirt, and, and none of those talk very much. But a lot of different pundits in California and some politicians have talked about with Trump in the White House, maybe— they should uh, secede. Uh, and of course, Gavin Newsom isn't one of them. I don't, I don't know that he's talked about secession. Uh, at least it doesn't come to mind. But he did in the last week uh, talk about them as a nation state, not as a state, but as a nation state. And when he said that they were going to, you know, they were complaining that they didn't have enough ventilators. It turns out they have plenty and they're going to and they sent some of them to other states They talked about exporting them to other states, Um, and it led, uh, you know, uh, a pundit uh, writing for Bloomberg, uh, Francis Wilkinson, Mr. Francis Wilkinson, just in case his gender was not clear, um, to really suggest that, you know, California should be its own society, its own nation state, and uh, and he even (laughs) brought up... John C. Calhoun, uh, who, as most people who recognize the name are going to say, well, this is the guy from South Carolina who was for secession and nullification. And uh, we really, we we talked just a little bit about, um, you know, the resolutions in Kentucky uh, and and Virginia that had uh, talked about the fact that states could nullify certain federal actions. Um, And of course, when, when you talk about nullification today, everyone says, oh, well, that's about slavery and that's about, you know, states' rights from a racist slavery standpoint. But of course, as we pointed out, that's not entirely true. I mean, there are folks who wanted states to be able to nullify because they like slavery. That's true. But there's also there were Northerners who were arguing for nullification when the, Fla- the Fugitive Slave Act was passed. And there were the Fugitive Slave Act, as you helped educate me uh, about, had elements that allowed outrageous, um, you know, for basically that there wasn't a normal judicial process to return these fugitive slaves and sometimes somebody who happened to be black and wasn't a fugitive slave but was accused of being a fugitive slave and dragging them back. And uh, it's, it's not something that we were able to put into the script because, of course, uh, you know, the script was about more than just the, the Fugitive Slave Act, but that the judges were given double the amount of compensation if they ruled that the person brought before them was a fugitive slave and was sent back, then if they ruled they weren't a fugitive slave and sent back. Now, that is insane, and yet that's what the Fugitive Slave Act was about. And and when you think about nullification being pro-slavery, Here were abolitionists and anti-slavery people, that's what abolition was all about, wanting to stop the Fugitive Slave Act because it was facilitating slavery, and they wanted to nullify it. Um, So, you know, it's just interesting. And, And of course, as we close that script, one of the most interesting things about it is nullification was usually saying, wait a second, the federal government can't tell us how to do things. The nullification uh, that Wilkinson was talking about was basically California saying, hey, where's our stuff? Where's our face mask? Where's, uh, you know, why hasn't the federal government sent us this stuff? And that's not at all the idea of nullification that historically has been there. Nullification hasn't been, hey, we're nullifying your lack of sending us what we asked for. Um you know, it's it's interesting because uh, something else that I think we'll probably uh, be talking about this next week and uh, on the website, this is commonsense.com, um, and then hopefully in the uh, podcast next weekend, is an article that ran in the New York Times. And um, it's called The America We Need. And they want to redefine liberty as having enough stuff. In other words, we think of, you and I, and I think most people think of liberty being free to do what you want to do. But the New York Times turns that on its head and basically says, you're not free unless you have stuff. Unless you can live at a level that makes you somehow fully actualized as a person in this world, you don't have liberty. Again, the whole idea being liberty isn't a government that leaves you free to live your life as you want to live it. It's a government that somehow takes from somewhere somebody enough to give everybody the stuff that makes our life wonderful. And you know, there are societies who have been set up that way, and none of us want to live there. They are the societies where all hell has broken loose and millions of people have been viciously murdered and starved to death. Um, it's, it's, It's just, you know, I know that the New York Times is far left, but what they're talking about in very flowery terms, very reasonable language, is a society in which the government is nearly omnipotent and which the word liberty or freedom gets redefined as the government giving you all the stuff you want. And if you think that in a society in which we're complaining all the time rightfully that we aren't truly represented and that our government doesn't listen to us if you think by making that government bigger they're going to give us all the stuff we ever wanted, you
1: need to put that bottle down and stop drinking. Well, that sounds like an ending. Sounds like an ending to the to the podcast, and we're in well an hour we're about an hour in, which is about normal. Uh, I guess at some point Just I
0: speed it all up so it'll be less than an hour. <laughs>
1: I don't think I'll be able to cut anything. Uh, and the speeding, the speeding is a little bit uh, tricky. Uh, I guess uh, before we end, I should mention uh, that you're Paul Jacob, which I did mention, I guess, once at the beginning. So people should know that you're Paul Jacob. You apply your trade at uh five days a week. And we have this podcast both days of the weekend, in video and audio. And my name is before Timothy enough. Verkula. Uh, and uh, you call call me Tim several times, and people have no idea why I'm... What, what, who am I? Why, am I, why, why is he there? Um, which is a good question, but there we are. Because when I write brilliant thoughts that don't make much
0: sense in actual words, I send them to you, and then you kind of, uh, you do your magic, whatever it is, and they actually make so much better sense when you send them back to me. Uh, you're the editor who uh, uh, I don't think I could survive without, and uh, and and, of course, it's not just that that you do great editing, but it's very helpful to be able to bounce ideas off. And and because uh, sometimes you want to write something and, you know, you haven't thought it through. And, I, and it, it's amazing how sometimes you start to write something and until you write it, you haven't thought it through. Uh, but anyway, uh, so my hat's off to you.
1: Well, that wasn't quite where I was going, but that's fine. I guess I can keep it in there. We're on SoundCloud. Uh, This podcast is on SoundCloud. Uh, It'll probably be on iTunes very soon. It's on Fitcher, and we'll probably be on Spotify very soon.
0: That is correct.
1: And, of course, we're on YouTube.
0: And we should mention to people, because we're also on Facebook. And on Facebook, our our website is thisiscommonsense.com, but on Facebook... We're common sense with Paul Jacob, so in case they, you know, look for it and are searching on on Facebook, uh, that's the way to get us common sense with Paul Jacob on Facebook, and this is commonsense.com on the on the internets,
1: and on SoundCloud it's this week in common sense, which is this program, which has just ended.